You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Dr. Mishlove is the host and producer of the new Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube, featuring conversations on parapsychology, spirituality, philosophy, psychology, health, science, history, and culture. Between 1986 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series. He's also the author of The Roots of Consciousness, Psy Development Systems, Thinking Aloud, and The PK Man. He happens to be the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university. It was from the University of California, Berkeley in 1980. He currently teaches parapsychology at the Holmes Institute for Ministers in Training with the Centers for Spiritual Living. So yeah, it's quite an impressive resume and it goes on and on. Now this was kind of a special interview for us because we actually flew out to Albuquerque, New Mexico to visit Dr. Mishlov at his home. He was so gracious, invited us in, made us tea, we sat down in his library, and the magic started flowing. And you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram for some great pictures. So here we go, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Well, you, as I've told you a couple of times, you are definitely uh, one of my main influences for doing this show. Mm-hmm. Those early years of watching your show on PBS mm-hmm. uh, were really influential for me because you're studying the things that interest me yeah you know consciousness i mean i had your i still have it's in storage now but uh your book roots of consciousness Mm -hmm. and it's just loaded with stuff all about um psychic research and levels of consciousness and the brain and so anyway um you're a huge influence for me well i'm i'm delighted to hear that yeah and I'd, i'd like to add to that you know one of the things that we talk about on this show a lot is um being open-minded skeptics. Mm-hmm. And, and, our, and Carlos's joke is always that, have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. Yep. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that we try to do is be open to things, um, but also apply some critical thinking mm-hmm. and, and, and some science, mm-hmm. you know? And um, you're one of those individuals that does exactly that. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of the reasons why we're excited to be able to have this conversation with you. Well, yeah. you came uh, a long way to be here and went to a lot of uh, trouble to get here. So uh, I'm delighted and I'm happy to share with you as much as I can. Beautiful. And for those who are listening right now, we're actually um, in, what would you call us, a, a library or a den? It, it's a conference room and library. Right. At uh, Dr. Mishlove's home, which is uh, like double honor for us to be able to be invited into your home. Um, and I look around, and there are all these amazing examples of uh, different traditions from around the world. So Dr. Mishlove has all these wonderful, there's a, you know scrolls and um, Torah and Buddha, and there's Kachina dolls and uh, Tibetan mandalas and Egyptian hieroglyphic mm-hmm. uh, representations and Japanese kimono, and there's just so many things that like I could spend hours or if not days wandering, just looking at everything here. <laughs> yeah, there's a story behind each item. <laughs> wow, <laughs> there's got to be, right? Let's just say the other thing is um, we always record, uh, usually we record in Oliver's living room, which is filled with books, and yet again we are recording in the presence of more books, mm-hmm. which is uh, perfect for us. Yeah, home away from home. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
could we just get right into the whole uh, remote viewing thing? I just saw Third Eye Spies, mm-hmm. and I know that you interviewed um, uh, Russell Targ for the, what was it, the eighth time or something like that? More than that, yeah. I, I suppose. Russell is actually one of my oldest and best friends. Wow, that is so cool. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed the show. Um, it included all the detail that I really wanted and craved. Um, when I watched a movie, remember we watched uh, Men Who Stare at Goats? Yes. And uh, it was funny, but it was just lacking in any of the meat that really is interesting to yeah. me. But not this documentary. It was loaded with stuff. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to know from your uh, standpoint, did you do research into uh, remote viewing yourself? Yes, I, I did. I even have a, a video interview, two of them, on the New Thinking Aloud channel, one with Russell and another one with Elizabeth Targ. Oh. Uh, excuse me, Elizabeth Rauscher. Okay. Elizabeth Targ was Russell's daughter, now deceased. That's another mm. interesting and long story. But Elizabeth Rauscher was a physicist who, when I first visited SRI, as I recall, in February of 1976 uh, to have a remote viewing experience. Elizabeth was the outbound experimenter on on that trial. And she remembered it vividly because it it was a perfect trial to illustrate the principle of analytical overlay. The target uh, it was a well-known target. It's been shown in many books, a pedestrian overpass over Highway 101 in mm. Menlo Park, California. And in my mind's eye, I thought I was seeing a rack of clothing in Macy's. And Russell was the monitor of my first remote viewing. And he, he said, what do you see? I said, well, I must be in Macy's. It looks like a rack of clothing. He says, no, 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 stop that. He said, <laughs> He said, I don't want you to interpret what you see at all. I want you to just describe the shapes and forms, the raw shapes and forms. And so I drew this picture, and I thought it was like hangers Uh in in a rack of clothing. But if you saw my picture and held it up next to a photograph of this pedestrian overpass, it was a perfect match. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So so the, even to this day, some 40 years later, they still like to use that particular incident because it illustrates so well one of the pitfalls of remote viewing is, is to overinterpret what you're seeing. So this is the thing that you're actually avoiding is the, is the analytical over, overlay. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Although a skilled remote viewer may Mm -hmm. see things very differently. I once attended a seminar with Joe McMonagle talking about about it. And he says, no, he says, don't worry about analytical overlay. (laughs) He says, just say whatever comes to mind. But he had so much experience. Yeah. You know, he's he's able to approach it differently. Good filters in place, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. But like for the listener... um, was the intention of that just sort of to get the conscious mind to not interfere with the exactly. sensory perceptions? That's right. That's okay. right. The, the, because you're, there's a natural tendency of the logical mind to want to get closure really quickly and, and to interpret. Yes. I mean, we do it automatically all the time because... Jump the gun. Yeah. I mean, a, a young baby, if you had a, an infant in this room here, they would be seeing patches of color and light. They mm-hmm. wouldn't see it the way you see it, you know, 
here's bookcases, here's a kimono, here's a kachina doll. They would see it very differently. But our mind, we are instantly interpreting everything we see. Mm -hmm. And a good remote viewer learns how to turn that off so that they can just report things without any interpretation. That's really cool. Um, I can see that being extremely important because there's so much unconscious pattern recognition mm -hmm. that we need to use in our life all the time. Yeah. Uh, one of my NLP teachers, uh, he really emphasizes the, the difference between um, you know, creating meaning, the meaning-making aspect, versus what you're actually witnessing. Mm -hmm. So the sensory acuity can tell you, um, you know, for example... Uh, is that person leaning in or are they leaning away? Is there tension? Are they relaxed? Those are sensory-based descriptions. But what you describe um, with meaning might be, oh, well, this person's feeling uncomfortable with what you just said, or this person is feeling thinking about something. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily know that. But once you do know that, you can, in retrospect, see that pattern, that fit, as opposed to using the 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 meaning making and interfering with your ability well, it's to interpret. very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, it, re it reminds me, we talk a lot about, um, <clears throat> Buddhist concepts for mind, right? And it's, it's, um, the idea of the conditioned mind. So you have perception, right? What's I think Vinyana, right? You have perception, then Sanya recognition and recognition is based upon your history, which you've interpreted. So it's almost like this idea of remove the recognition and just stick with the perception. The That's basic right. Perception. Especially yeah. in the beginning. When, yeah. when you're first doing remote yeah. viewing. Uh, and of course, depending on the personality characteristics of the viewer. Yeah. But it also highlights the importance of what we call the monitor mm. in remote viewing. Russell had is an enormous track record, one of the most successful researchers in the history of parapsychology. Wow. And it has to do with his ability to be the monitor, which he mostly did. So he recognized instantly when I said, oh, this must be made. Mm -hmm. that I was use, analyzing. Mm -hmm. and, and so he just instantly said, stop that. And, and you know, go, go back and tell me actually what are the raw images. You know, it, it sounds also like um, his strong background of you know, being a laser physicist, mm -hmm. uh, that plays into the logic a little bit because you have a, a source of energy, like a light source going through a lens, and that lens is either going to focus or disperse or redirect that light beam and information or um, let's say sensory data is going to come in and, and there are ways in which you could probably blur the image versus allowing the image to make a full impression. Well, another way in which his background as a laser physicist, I think, is important. And Russell is very unusual. If you ever got to meet him or, or, or know him, he has laser-like focus in his mind, you go into SRI International, well, in those days, that's where he worked, uh -huh. and you see this fellow, six foot four, six foot five inches oh. tall, and he says to you, everybody does remote viewing here. <laughs> and he says it with such focus that you can't doubt him. Wow. And I, I, <laughs> at I, that I, point, yeah. it was like, of course I'm going to do it. Everybody does. <laughs> I, you know, I... I enjoyed your interview, um, your recent interview with him. Mm. And, uh, I, I was so, um, convinced by his conviction, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. he's like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's, he is totally convinced and he's such a solid human being and so focused that it, it rubs off. Everybody around him seems to get 
that you can do this. That's so cool. So, so you don't have to be someone who considers themselves gifted at psychic stuff, per se. You can train to do remote viewing anyway. Many remote viewers will tell you that uh, people who are already consider themselves psychic are at a disadvantage. Oh. <laughs> that a person who has never done it before, hasn't even had any psychic experiences at all, but is willing to learn the protocol and follow it from scratch and practice has maybe a better chance of, uh, if they have a little bit of native talent uh, than somebody who is skilled at reading auras and seeing spirit guides uh -huh. and past lives and uh, things that are different than remote viewing because they are not... Um, easily susceptible to empirical verification. Mm. It occurred to me that we should probably talk about what remote viewing is. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of jumped in the middle. So we I jumped in the middle. Ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't All help right. it. Um, how would you describe remote viewing for a person who's uh, curious but hasn't heard anything? Well, of it? I would say it's it's an updated word for what we used to call clairvoyance mm -hmm. or clear seeing, mm -hmm. having information uh, about distant events uh, just pop into your mind. Usually, when you the way Russell does it is very simple. You know, no particular training or everything or anything we go into uh, at SRI a quiet room and, and in fact in that case in the radio physics laboratory it was a sealed room oh. so radio signals couldn't penetrate there was no possibility of somebody you know giving me secret information via walkie-talkie mm -hmm. and so I'm in the sealed room and he says to me close your eyes and uh, ask your subconscious mind to give you permission to get information about the target. And in this instance, the target was a random location chosen by the outbound experimenter, Elizabeth Rauscher. Uh, she leaves the building, and when she gets into her car, she opens up an envelope that has the random target, and she drives there in a half hour. She gets there, and, and at that point, I'm supposed to describe the impression, mental impressions I have that might correspond to the location uh, and the experiences that she's having. Wow. Hmm. You do find that there's a gap, there's a divide between what people think these things are and then maybe what the people that are working on these actual things believe that those things are? Well, the, the tricky thing is we don't really know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, there's some people who would call it remote viewing or remote perception as if information is coming to you from a distant location. That's sort of a, a um, information transmission model. There are other people who would say, no, it's doesn't work that way at all because there's no organ of perception and there's no channel of information being transferred. So how then does that knowledge uh, pop into your mind? Well, some people say it's Jungian synchronicity, that, which we don't understand except it's not an information transmission model. Mm -hmm. uh, other people would say... It has to do with the nature of time and space. The time and space aren't what we think they are. And other people would say, well, everything is consciousness, that the whole world is, the whole universe is part of your consciousness. So the fact that you can access information from anywhere in time and space really just shows you how large your consciousness actually is. Mm -hmm. and, and to be honest, um, from a scientific point of view, we have very little um, 
evidence that favors any one of those interpretations over any other, except to say that, you know, we don't have the information transmission model seems to be the weakest of, of them all. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like you're describing omniscience, you know, just being able to know something. You could call it that. You might say we are like godlings. And, yeah. and uh, or another way to think of it is, is that the, the boundaries that separate my mind from the rest of the world are a bit leaky. Mm-hmm. The, the margins are leaky. and informa- some, Somehow knowledge passes through those margins that the idea that every human being is a, a separate world unto themselves is mostly true, but not entirely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting, you know, images of, you know, people saying that, you know, well, we are everything, right? So then if, if, if that's true and we are everything, then maybe a moment ago I wasn't aware of my left foot, but maybe now I am. And so I can perceive something. So maybe where somebody is at a particular time and place, that is us. We're just not paying attention to it. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Mm. You know? it, bottom line would be that everybody who participates in, in remote viewing comes away with a sense that uh, there, being a human being is much larger than we were raised to think. We don't learn in conventional uh, education and even in conventional religion uh, how large our human consciousness actually is. When I, I think about remote viewing, it opens up this kind of other portion of the conversation, which is, you know, what happens after we die, you know, mm-hmm. um, has, have there been interactions, uh, that you know of in the research with non-physical beings? The tricky thing is, um, how do you know if you're interacting with a non-physical being that that's actually what it is as opposed to a projection from your own subconscious? Right. That, or uh, even if the non-physical being, let's say, provides you with a whole host of accurate information that you wouldn't otherwise have known, how do you know that uh, it wasn't your own clairvoyance or mm-hmm. remote viewing abilities or mm-hmm. the remote viewing abilities if you're working with a medium or a, another person of, of theirs. So um, parapsychologists have run into a, a kind of um, philosophical roadblock right. in terms of addressing the question of the existence of spirits. Uh, shall we say, spirits of the deceased or spirits of ex- aliens or mm-hmm. any other kind of non- Angels, demons, physical fairies, et cetera. beings. But if you take a look at all of the accumulated uh, case studies uh, that are now, I would say, 150 years old or so, there are thousands of reports of different interactions that people have had with apparitions, with mediumistic communications, with alien abductions, uh, with near-death experience where they encounter visions of uh, their departed loved ones and so on. It begins to paint a picture of... um, another world, an invisible world, a supersensible world that is populated by autonomous conscious entities. 
So uh, even though uh, we, we've run into this roadblock where we can't really finalize uh, any sort of proof at this point, or, or even a really strong, convincing argument, uh, if you look at the, the, the larger picture painted by probably a thousand different case studies, you, it's hard to come away without feeling that the, the probability that uh, invisible beings, spirit beings, uh, hyperspace beings, however you want to define them, uh, very likely that, the, that they're real. I, I regard it as, uh, as a worthy hypothesis that is yet to be firmly established. Great. So the way you're describing it um, is, let's say, um, it's philosophical, it's scientific, it's analytical. But if we were to step into just the experiential for a moment, mm -hmm. um, would you say, like, outside of the scientist mm -hmm. um, self, just your experiential self, have you had experiences that you believe were... Um, fitting into that category of Well, I had one that changed my life. Okay. For example, I, um, back in about 1972, I had a very powerful dream uh, in which a great uncle of mine appeared in the dream, my Uncle Harry, whom I hadn't seen maybe in 10 years mm. or so at that point in time. And uh, he began talking to me about my life in a very, very powerful way so that when I woke up from the dream, I was singing a, an old Jewish melody. Mm. Uh, in fact, yesterday was Yom Kippur. It's, it's uh -huh. a, a melody that's only sung in the high Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, it's called Ovino Malkano. It's very considered sacred liturgy. And I woke up singing this song and crying at wow. the same time, which has only happened to me once in my life. It was such a powerful emotional experience, uh, the kind of experience that people, I would describe and other people describe similar experiences being more real than, than this. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote home, I asked my parents, you know, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. And my mother phoned me up right away. She said, how did you know? Uncle Harry just died. Wow. Mm. And uh, so that got my attention. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. It certainly made me think uh, that, you know, there is uh, an afterlife. And, and, of course, my experience isn't unique. Many people have had yeah. mm -hmm. those kinds of experiences. For sure. Mm. So, yes, at an experiential level... Uh, that, that experience gave me every reason to, to feel that uh, there's, there's a real uh, existence beyond this physical plane. Mm. And is that feeling something that originally drove you towards the study of parapsychological yeah. studies? Yeah, uh, for sure. It, it did. I began to uh, ask people about it. I mentioned it to my professors at the time. I, was, uh, I wasn't in graduate school then, as I recall, but I was working uh, as a volunteer in the psychology department. Is that Berkeley? At Berkeley, yeah. Okay. So I started talking to the professors, what, what do you know about this? I learned very quickly that 
nobody at Berkeley had anything intelligent to say <laughs> whatsoever. And, and they would have been that, happy for you to just stop asking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's when I resolved that if I <clears throat> wanted to understand these things, I would have to become my own expert. Hmm. I couldn't rely on other people. And that was sort of a, a very key moment in, in the process that led me to um, end up eventually creating, a, you know, a doctoral, individual, interdisciplinary uh, doctoral major in parapsychology at Berkeley. I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. Like, um, considering that um, this is not the, the typical thing that happens in education, uh, me being an educator, right? Um, could you tell us about how did that happen? I was in a, a program at Berkeley. I enrolled in criminology. Ha. I was because I had a background in uh, psychology and also uh, some criminology as an undergraduate. And um, so I enrolled in criminology. I had a big interest in human deviance. And I was doing interesting work in criminology. I was working as a volunteer at San Quentin Prison in the psychiatric unit doing group therapy with murderers and sex offenders. Wow. So it was fascinating work. But at at one point, I got disillusioned, you know, being around all that negativity. Mm -hmm. And I realized that what I really wanted to do was explore positive forms of human deviance <laughs> rather than negative. Yeah, <laughs> boy, did you. Yeah. And the problem was that at a school like Berkeley, you could study crime, you could study psychopathology, as um, much as you wanted. There are many, many programs. But if you want to study intuition, creativity, <laughs> psychic functioning, yeah. mysticism, there was nothing. Yeah. So I agonized about this um, for a long time, for months. And it was very depressing. I didn't know what to do. And then one day, I told myself with absolute certainty that today is the day I'm going to have a dream and the answer as to how I'm going to you know, navigate this situation is going to come to me in a dream. I knew that. Wow. And so I went to bed and that night I did have a dream, a very vivid dream. And when I awoke, awakened from the dream, I felt certain that I had the answer, but I didn't know what it what meant. So, and in my dream, mm. I was visiting some friends in um, in Berkeley across town, married student housing, and I knocked on the door of their apartment. Nobody was home, and in the dream, I found the key that they hid, and let myself into their apartment. Walked into the living room. Sitting in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine. In the dream, it was called I, E-Y-E. -E. And I picked it up, and as I was paging through the magazine, I woke up with this feeling of exhilaration, like that's the answer. But because I had no clue what it really meant, I acted out the dream. It wow. got up at 7 in the morning, put on my tennis shoes, ran across town five miles to the married student housing, knocked on the door of the apartment, Nobody was there, just as I had dreamt. And actually, I knew they kept a key under the doormat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I let myself in, walked into the living room. Sitting in the middle of the living room floor, all by itself, was a magazine. Wow. And I picked it up. The magazine wasn't called I. It was called Focus. 
Mm. Wow. And that magazine brought focus into my life. It was the magazine published by KQED, AM and FM and TV in the San Francisco Bay Area, listener-sponsored public media. And as I was paging through it, it dawned on me for the very first time in my life that I could pursue my interests by getting involved in the, that nonprofit segment of the media. And uh, so I went over to KPFA Radio in Berkeley, mm-hmm. uh, which was a Pacifica nonprofit station, and, mm-hmm. and I just volunteered. I had my master's degree already, and I said, I'll, I'll volunteer. And they said, Okay, sit at this desk, and when you hear the doorbell ring, push this buzzer and let people in the door. That's your job. Coffee stir. And, and I was happy to do it mm-hmm. at that point. And uh, it was like magic, uh, actually. Within three weeks, I had learned how to produce a radio program. Wow. I did a program uh, on basically the idea you don't have to be from out of town to be psychic, mm. that there were all mm. kinds of people. I was hanging out with the local Berkeley um, pagans and occultists. Right. and Isaac Bonowitz. Isaac like, was a friend of mine. Oh, was, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, sure, that whole game. Another person who had a strange degree, a degree yes, in magic. That's right, that's right. <laughs> from Berkeley. Mm-hmm. I knew Isaac very well, hung oh, out cool. with him all the time, and many of the people in that crowd. So and. Cool. So I interviewed them, and that was my first radio program. And the program director, after that very first program was released, he said, you know, we have a slot available twice a week, a program called The Mind's Ear. And, you know, within a few weeks of having the dream, I found myself sitting at a table just like this with world-class experts passing through the San Francisco area on all the topics that I was interested in, and I'm interviewing them. And, you know, people like Robert Monroe wow. would, would come through. And that gave me then the confidence to go work through the university bureaucracy and take advantage of a very little-known opportunity if you wanted, if you were already in graduate school in good standing, but you wanted to do a dissertation for your doctoral degree on a topic where no single department would sponsor you, but you could find at least three faculty members from three different departments who would sponsor you to explore that topic, you could create your own uh, individual program. And so I did that. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So you had Charles Tart. I had Charlie Tart. And what was, what was his um, degree? Well, he's a psychologist. Psychologist, He he was in psychology Mm -hmm. at UC Davis, but I, I could draw upon the whole university of California system (laughs) at that point. I had Michael Scriven in philosophy on my committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Morris was actually at the time teaching parapsychology at the university of California, Santa Barbara. I got him on the committee. Hmm. Whoa. And um, I had a historian, I had a statistician, and and so... um, Good mix. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's how it happened. That's how it happened. Now, when was this? About about what era are we talking about? I entered the program in 1973, and I got my degree in 1980. Okay. Okay. Very nice. Mm -hmm. And the... Uh, and thinking aloud, the original was at what eighty six? Yes, it was in nineteen eighty six that we launched the original Thinking Aloud television series. Wow! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And boy, you've had some great guests. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. You definitely have, yeah. Well, that yeah. dream that led me to do radio is has been the main inspiration of my whole life, in, in a mm. way, because the, then I went into television, and uh -huh. then I set up the YouTube channels. So, you know, I'm still doing mm -hmm. the uh, work that... Uh, came out of that original inspiration. So you're, you're quite literally living your dream. Yes. Yeah. In, in the altruistic sense and also in the actual sense, because it was from a dream. Yeah. Gosh, that is so cool. Yeah. I, well, I, I felt yeah. I was being guided. Or another way, when people ask me, well, you know, what is the meaning of this, that you had this dream? I tell people that if you resolve to become the best version of yourself, mm -hmm the universe will reach out to help you. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Very nice. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I strongly believe in, I mean, we, we talk about these kinds of things, about how important it is to, to just reach in and, and find congruence and live from that place. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, you must have had a lot of courage at that time to, to trust and just jump in and go, I'm doing it. Well, I don't know if it was courage or, or I began thinking about um, what it was. And I realized when I was in high school, let's go back even uh -huh. to a younger, when around the age of 16, this would have been 1962, uh -huh. 1963, in, in that area, you were probably not even born. Nope, 71, uh -huh. 73. <laughs> okay, well, back then there was a huge fad called folk music, hmm. folk singing. That was big. I was part of a folk singing group, as a matter of wow. fact. Wow, what did you play? I played the baritone ukulele, nice. and, and not very well. Oliver just perked <laughs> yeah, up yeah, suddenly. We got our, our, I, I noticed him lifting his eyebrow interested. for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> baritone well, it's it's a fun <laughs> instrument for people who are not very skilled. Like I couldn't manage six strings, but I, I, it had only four strings, so I, I could, you know, I could you play sang? the chords for some folk songs. And one of the folk songs that I just loved in that era and sang a lot and performed, even as a teenager, was. Um, uh, I don't give a damn about a greenback dollar. Oh, yeah. Spend it fast as I can. And I began to realize that somehow that, from the folk music era, I inculcated and incorporated within myself this idea about not caring about uh, conventional things like a career in money. Be because, you know, the conventional wisdom for anybody is don't go into parapsychology. Nobody will ever hire you. Mm -hmm. You'll never get a job. <laughs> which is almost entirely true. I'm parapsychologists <laughs> are some of the poorest people by and large. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. you, I've had parapsychologists, even when I was a student, try and borrow money from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, because people do it out for passion uh, for the most part, not, not for money. Any, anybody who is concerned about making a healthy living wouldn't would never become a parapsychologist and parapsychologists always give the advice if you're interested in going into this field get yourself a secure stable <laughs> position in some other area like psychology and then become a tenured professor so you're safe and you can't be fired and then you can kind of <laughs> explore parapsychology but i did it the opposite way and, and I have no regrets, I can say that. But 
you have to be the kind of person who has an entrepreneurial spirit. Mm. You, if you expect somebody to hand you a, a career on a silver platter, like you might get in medicine or law or mm. even conventional psychology, uh, it's probably not going to happen that way. I mean, there are, you know, maybe a dozen people who are employed full-time in parapsychology mm. Wow, in the world. Well, you know, with, with your work... Um, you've had the opportunity to be in the physical presence of so many amazing people, interesting people. And so the one question that I really wanted to ask you is um, everybody you meet, you get an impression. There's a physical presence to everybody. You know, there's like kind of an energetic quality to everybody that you meet. I'm wondering which ones really stand out to you. Well, there's one person uh, actually, who I regard as sort of head and shoulders above the others for me, mm. and that is Jean Houston. Oh wow! Uh, who is now? Jean must be in her eighties. She's still teaching. She's still alive. I yeah, didn't know. yeah, yeah. She's uh, living up in Oregon, and uh, um, not Eugene in um, where they have the Shakespeare Festival. Okay, that's Ashland. Oh, Ashland. Not I bad. think it's Ashland. Ashland. Ashland Shakespeare Festival. Yeah, she lives. Mm. She still does workshops, really? and yeah, she had a big influence on me. I met her in about 1973, and um, I'm very impressed with her work and her talent and her vision. And uh, she had a big influence on me, and and still does. I think uh, of her as as um, an amazing cultural treasure. Tell us more about what it was about her in particular that moved you. Her sense of humor. Okay. Her, and, and her ability to, her theatrical sense. What she did is she studied, she, she, her, in her career growing up, her father was a, wrote for comedians. He was a comedy writer. And she studied theater. In fact, she studied the method acting of Stanislavski. And uh, she also studied uh, with Joseph Campbell, the, you know. No way. The, yeah, the mythologies yeah. of the world. Yeah. And she wow. developed a uh, synthesis of, of these things that she calls her mystery school, uh, which I participated in for many years. And where she synthesized, you know, her, her depth understanding of psychology. She did a lot of the original research on psychedelic drugs and altered states of consciousness and also parapsychology. And she combined that with uh, an incredible theatrical sense. Wow. And um, it, it had a big influence on me. I still think of her as... Uh, even though I haven't spoken to her in decades, I, I think of Jean Houston as uh, probably the most significant uh, external influence, living person who influenced my approach. Wow. And if you've mm -hmm. gone through the mystery school, then she's your initi initiatrix. Well, you could say that. Right? <laughs> I, I, there was a point once she gave this lecture on... Uh -huh. uh, the on the Kabbalah, uh -huh. she she would choose a different topic each month. We'd meet for a weekend once a month, and this week month was the Kabbalah. And she um, worked with um, Carlos Suarez's book on the cipher of Genesis. Mm. So she gave this lecture on the very first sentence in the uh, Hebrew Bible, 
which is in Hebrew, Bereshit, Bara, Adonai, Et HaShemayim, Viet HaOretz. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And she goes letter by letter mm-hmm. through that sentence and explaining how it was that God actually created the universe hmm. using a Kabbalistic interpretation. Hmm. Zohar, and, right? Well, is this Zohar? From not strictly from the Zohar, but from Carlos Suarez in okay. his book, The Cipher of Genesis. Gotcha. Now, he had perhaps the Zohar was his influence. Mm. I can't say for sure. Uh, and that's another long story. We could go into <laughs> Carlos Suarez and the influence that he has had on people. Um, there's a lot to say about that. But and Jean Houston was lecturing, and while she's lecturing about this, I felt like I got it. I actually understood how God created the universe. <laughs> and, and I thought for a moment, I thought to myself, it's the funniest thing you could imagine. <laughs> and I'm rolling on the floor. <laughs> and, and then the next moment, I would think to myself, the passion, the, the, the depth of understanding for God to create the universe, and I was crying. Wow. And the next moment, I'm laughing again. <laughs> Wow, wow. And Jean Houston saw me <laughs> like this on the floor, and she walks over to me, and she said, oh, you're having an epiphany, huh? Yeah. And she winked at me. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Wow. Profound. <laughs> that is neat. Wow. Well, you know, in, in the short few years that we've been doing this show, um, we've met a lot of incredible people. And then every show that we, or every person that we interview, I feel like there's one or two nuggets that mm-hmm. actually changes my life, mm-hmm. that makes me be a different person, a better person, see the world in a different way. Um, are there any that you might share from the many people that you've had a chance to meet? Um, people like, like, who have oh nuggets. i mean like like nuggets, nuggets. from maybe somebody uh, that you interviewed uh, altered you somehow in a beautiful way or mm. anything that sticks sticks mm. in your mind you know it's funny you use the word nuggets because what i have done with the um, the new thinking allowed videos is i've created a series called video nuggets oh, where wow where I yeah. take like little five minute excerpts. He remote uh-huh. viewed that. Of, yeah. of, yeah. of the, different, I... <laughs> the different videos. But actually what's occurred to me, and I used to do that even before I was doing the, the New Thinking Aloud series I did for a while, I was doing uh, radio on uh, something called the Wisdom Network. Mm. And, and we did nuggets there as well. And I've come to the conclusion, I think, that Nuggets are very nice, but they're not a, an adequate substitute for a more real, in-depth approach. That it, You can get something out of a nugget, but you can get a lot more if you're willing to sit through an hour-long conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I guess I haven't done any of those nuggets now for quite a while. Um, all right. So I'm not. I guess I'm not big on nuggets. Sure, yeah, you've, well, you've graduated from can, nuggets. I'm yeah. going to tag team on that then. Okay. I'm, I'm going to um, uh, ride on the coattails of that and, and ask a different question, but f- but related. Okay. You've had a lot of years of reflection and experiential um, teachings and things like that. Yeah. 
And here you are at, do you mind me asking your age? 72. I'll be 73 in December. 72 and looking strong. Um, So you could look back on your life from the very beginning when you started the show at, how old were you then? Which show? Um, Thinking Aloud. Thinking Aloud. Uh, the original Thinking Aloud series w- started in 1986. Okay. So how, I'm, I'm not mathletic, so I won't do the math on that. <laughs> how old, however old you were. Yeah. Um, I was you, 40. You were 40. So looking back on that now, um, what do you now understand that you, if you could, if you could go back and just kind of shortcut and go straight to that thing that you've discovered, mm-hmm. is there anything like that, that you found? <laughs> or is it a lot of stuff? <laughs> he laughs his ass off. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and can it fit in a bread basket? Right. Yes. <laughs> Not a nugget, though. I don't want you to tell me about yeah. nuggets. Don't yeah. tell me about nuggets. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, you know what I think? Um, we, if we were alive. Uh-huh. 10,000 years from now, uh-huh. we could be having this same yeah. conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. It's, yeah. it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I can't say that I've learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> Have you unlearned anything? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 it's like, I live for the conversation in, yeah. in, a, in a way. Every moment is, is a nugget. Yeah. Uh, to a large degree, mm. to a very large degree, but to the, to the extent that I can say I've learned something now that I didn't know when I was 40, or I learned something at the age of 40 that I didn't know when I was 21, and I had, want to pass it on to you. Um, or even a message to yourself back then. Well... Probably the simplest message is just be present. Ah, uh, okay. Just and and I keep working at it. I'm not, you know, I don't know that I'm any better at it now than I used to be, but but it's important to pay attention to the here and now. Mm. That's mm. because that's where we live. We always live in the here and now, and there's so much of value if if we can see it, if we can apprehend it. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's a good nugget. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I, Carlos, I think what we learned is that they're all nuggets. They're all nuggets. <laughs> there's, there's just so many Put that in a meme, Oliver. They're all nuggets. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with um, the book of Abramelin? Abramelin? Yes. Yeah, so there's a new translation that came out maybe 10 years ago. Um, that's the most complete translation, oh. not not the Victorian one that's missing like two or th- two books out of the whole. Oh, um, the but Gregor it's, Mathers translation. Right. I have it here. Yeah, that one that one is uh, incomplete. It's from a French uh, uh-huh. manuscript, but this is actually uh, from, I think. Middle German or High German, yes. and uh, they've identified who they think uh, the author is. Oh. I think he was the Maharil, which is um, Abraham of Worms. Oh, and so it just your your story kind of reminded me of that. 
if you get a chance to to um, get the new version, of the I book. will because that that book had a big mm. impact on me. Yeah, same. Uh, when I was in criminology, in fact, because part of the magical ritual described uh-huh. in that book is you have to spend six months in total solitude. Right, and when you read this, you'll find out it's eighteen months. Eighteen months. Yes. Well, that got my attention, and um, one of the first things I did as a criminology student, is I thought I, I would do a study of what are the effects of solitude. Really? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, be, because I was intending at some, when I first learned about this magical grimoire, uh-huh. I thought, well, I'm still, you know, I was like in my early 20s, I thought, I could do this ritual. Wouldn't oh that gosh. be interesting? I love you. <laughs> you just went way up. On the sky. I thought you couldn't get any higher, but there we go. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I looked into it. I I never got even close to doing yeah, it's it. It's tough. Yeah, it's a serious commitment. It it is. I um, I know that uh, Alistair Crowley endeavored to do it, and he didn't succeed no, either. No. Uh, so, but it's always fascinated me. There's a fellow that um, has done it. His name is Aaron Leach. Uh, they're they're a small collection in the entire world who've who've actually gone through it, mm. and he teaches and supports people in doing that if they're really serious, but only if they're really serious, because yeah. he's he's a kind of an old school occultist, mm-hmm. um, traditional magic with a traditional model, not a psychological model, but an mm-hmm. actual spirit model, yeah. and it's uh, there are no substitutions unless it's authorized with mm. within the I texts see. and things like that but he if you're curious about his his process he he teaches about that i will look into yeah, it thank you for that yeah, that's very neat. interesting that's so cool that you you know about that i'm i'm, I'm glowing right now just that's well when cool. i first came to berkeley in 1969 mm-hmm. I I ran into a drug dealer <laughs> <laughs> in Berkeley. I know, that's unheard of. <laughs> uh, yeah, a, a, a guy who was dealing acid. Uh, you know, even more unheard of. It was it was a crazy time, a very crazy time. He but was a para drug dealer. He introduced yeah. me to that book. He was really into oh. it, and, and I took it quite seriously. Well, Grady the, McMurtry the, was right there in Berkeley. Uh, I, Grady, I remember yeah. I, Grady. He, I think he lived in Walnut Creek. Oh, Walnut Creek, yeah, that's yeah. right, close, uh-huh. close by. Yeah, yeah, the OTO. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, can I? Do you, did you know Grady McMurtry personally? I can't say that I knew him. I, I believe I met him, or I believe I was at events where he was present. Mm-hmm. I, I have a picture in my mind of what he looks like, so I've seen him. I, I was probably in the same room with him on one or two occasions, but it never went beyond that. Interesting. But I, you know, he was legendary and sure. uh, at, at that time and was involved in the publication of the original Aleister Crowley tarot deck, which mm-hmm. I had a copy of. That's mm-hmm. a great deck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so mm-hmm. intricate. Yes, it is. Love it. Yep. I, I was very fond of that deck. I took it quite seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's so much detail in Book of Thoth that, that, that he gets into with each card and, and mm-hmm. the depth of... Yeah. Of interpretation with yeah. it, it's it's really rich, mm-hmm. really rich. Mm-hmm. So cool, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, speaking of of books and things like that of that nature, a question I like to ask sometimes are: um, <clears throat> Are there a couple of books that you just couldn't live without that you just highly recommend? Uh, 
Okay. <laughs> all, all of them, in other words. Just keep yeah. reading. The keep having of, conversations. The, the book of nuggets. Right? The book of nuggets. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay, here, here's a fun one. Just, yeah, just, okay. just a little adventure and silliness yeah. here. Pat Price and Ted Sirius, yeah. celebrity death match. Yeah. Just kidding. But no, really, comparing the two. Yes. Um, they both seem very phenomenal, like like big time examples of um, phenomenological. Yes, yeah, they they both produced uh, superb data in uh, laboratory settings. Could you speak a little bit about both of those? Because I know a little. They're very bit, different. Yes, I know. People, Ted Sirios was an alcoholic. He did his best work when he was inebriated. Wow, and. Uh, and of course, it was psychokinesis, and, uh, and in fact, the term thoughtograph right. comes from that work that he did. There's now a big collection of all of the photographs he produced working with Dr. Jewel Eisenbud. It is being housed at the University of Maryland, um, uh, not in college, I think, in Baltimore, in the in the library. Steve Browdy arranged for all of that. Uh, Rowdy was chair of the philosophy department there. Pat Price was, if I remember correctly, was the police commissioner at Burbank, oh, California. Yes. I didn't know he was a police officer. Yeah, commissioner. Oh, commissioner. Okay. Uh, I don't. It's different. No, yeah, I don't know what, think he was a police officer, but he was more of an administrator, I got suppose. It. But he was also a Scientologist. That's what I was going to ask he you. He got okay. his, his training that way. I don't know how Ted Sirios developed his abilities. So Pat Price <clears throat> developed his um, technique, if you will, from Scientology? I assume okay. that. I, I can't say for sure. Um, it may well be that he had the talent before he ever got into Scientology, for all I know. But, uh, well, you watched Third Eye Spies. Right. So they described him as the most psychic man in the world. That was at, their at opinion. At the time, yes. Yeah. He, he was doing amazing work, but he was also, uh, as reported in that documentary, uh, in undergoing Scientology auditing. And even <laughs> though he was being employed by the CIA... He, he was reporting to the uh, Scientology people what was going on. and Big no-no. Uh, that, that may well have led to his demise, for all we know. Yeah. I mean, Russell Targ speculates on that. Sure. That's all anyone can do is speculate. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Did you witness uh, Ted Sirios doing his photography? No. Okay, so did you, did you interview him? No. Okay. No, nor Pat Price. Because he was in your book, so I wanted to ask yeah, you that question. No, I, if I... I, I never um, had any direct contact. I, I will say this about Ted Sirios. When I was an undergraduate in psychology at the mm -hmm. University of Wisconsin in Madison, mm -hmm. I, I graduated uh, in 1969, and I wrote a senior honors thesis on the psychology of religious mysticism. That was already becoming my passion uh, as an undergraduate. And I had an advisor who was a philosopher at the time, uh, Claudia Card was, was her name, who was supervising me in this thesis. And my goal at those days, I was pretty skeptical. My goal was to uh, 
basically say, you know, this mysticism is some form of psychopathology. And I was going to try and explain it that way and describe it that way. And Claudia Card, my professor, had a copy of uh, Jewel Eisenbud's book, The World of Ted Sirios. And she said, you know, you ought to look into this. You should take this stuff seriously. Don't assume at the outset that it's all a form of psychopathology. Wow. Hmm. Look at this book, for example. Hmm. Interesting. So, so the Ted Sirios case was instrumental in getting me to uh, broaden my own thinking. So, so who who was somebody? Was it was it Charlie Tart that that brought that stuff out more in in testing? And who's who who brought him into the lab and started kind of making him sort of famous? I guess Sirius. Yeah. Well, it was Jules Eisenberg. Oh, it was Jules. Okay. He was a Denver psychiatrist. Yeah, and who who did pretty much all the research with Ted Sirius. Yeah, and and wrote the book. If I remember correctly, he could like a person could tell him. Um, put an image of something and he could put an image of that thing onto the camera, right? Well, Just the most with his mind. amazing example that I recall was, yes, they take, Eisenbud would have photographs of different targets, put them in sealed envelopes. As I recall, he wrapped them in aluminum foil and put the aluminum foil inside of a paper envelope. And uh, so you couldn't see at all what the image was on the photograph. And then he'd tell Sirios, concentrate and reproduce that image onto Polaroid film. He had a Polaroid camera. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the images was an old picture of a um, building in Denver. I recall Denver, Colorado, or somewhere, I think, in Colorado. It was uh -huh. like an old uh, opera house, something like that. Okay, And... Um, the image produced by Ted Sirios was almost an exact replica, except there were some interesting differences. Like uh, in one instance, I think there was a, a square window, and in the image produced by Sirios, the window had a rounded top, and, and things of that uh. sort. Um, so, you know his mind caused certain distortions. And I think if I remember correctly, I'm not a hundred percent certain about this, that some of the things produced in the Sirios images were of that same building, but not as it was photographed, but how it had looked in previous years. Hmm. Curious. Yeah. Wow. So uh, all of that is in Eisenbud's book, the world of Ted Sirios. Uh, I mean, if you want hardcore evidence, that's, it's a good place to look. Now the, there was an effort to debunk Sirios. It was published by a photographer in Photography Magazine where he claimed it was all fraud. And the amazing Randy used to go around saying, I can reproduce these things fraudulently. Right. And, mm. and he could. You know, it's possible a, a skillful magician can do all kinds of things. Sure. Uh, but Sirios <laughs> was inebriated at the time when, <laughs> when yeah. he did these things. Mm. And Eisenbud challenged Randy. He said, why don't you do it in my laboratory under the same conditions that Ted Sirios did it, which would be to be strip-searched, to be placed inside of a Faraday cage so uh, nobody could communicate uh, signals to you inside and outside the cage, and to be inebriated. Wow, and of mm. course he wouldn't do it. No, Randy. Randy's, Randy's a, would, you know, pardon me, he's a bit of a chicken. Yeah, he, I'm he, say that. he would not do it under those conditions. Yeah. And his excuse was he didn't drink. 
Right. Oh. Well, the, well, there you have it. I'm, I'm going to just sort of publicly pick a bone here. I'm taking full responsibility for everything I'm saying here. I've been annoyed with uh, his approach to um, what he calls skepticism for years because there's no respect to ideas as being possible. It's not even a consideration. So um, I've found his descriptions of things are, are typically um, just his own description that he doesn't even, like he'll talk about alchemy from his perspective rather than what it is traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed that he does this with a lot of psychic phenomenon and yeah. talking about PK and things like that. Well, I, so. I think of Randy as sort of the Donald Trump of parapsychology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's really true. Yeah. I mean, his, his um, demonstration of, of uh, who's the Russian, um, the Soviet lady who, who moves things around? Nina Kulaga. Nina Kulaga, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that was um, staged or not. I have no idea. But when I saw his demonstration of him doing the same thing, I thought to myself, There's a, there are some striking dissimilarities yeah. between the film of her and what I'm seeing you do. And I would think since you had so much time to think this up, why wouldn't it be exactly the same when you could do that? Um, it, it's bizarre to me. And this, this, go ahead, please. Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, your listeners should know that just because a magician can duplicate uh, for a naive audience something that a psychic does doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the psychic used the same tricks as the magician. Right. That, yeah. That's the first thing to yeah. be aware of. But I hear all the time from people who, who say, you know, Randy's offering a million dollars, and if this stuff is real, why don't you just go collect his yeah. million dollars? Until anybody gets Randy's million dollars, I'm not going to believe any of it. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, he has it set up with his lawyers that um, not only is it that you have to prove that you can do these things, it has to be only in his definition. So he, he creates these parameters, and it's not he says it's negotiable, but it isn't. Not only that, but he gets full rights over all the details. You have to sign an, an NDA. Yeah. You cannot release. So in other words, if you have your side of the story, you can't show it. So who in their right mind would, would agree to such terms? It's, in, it's not a fair uh, Well, I trial. do know some talented people who have attempted to do that and, and mm-hmm. didn't succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe Randy mm-hmm. is performing a useful service. I, I yeah, tend yeah. to think of it in a larger sense. Sure. Because I have been the victim, and I can tell you this, every mm-hmm. single person I know in the field of parapsychology has felt... Uh, a sense of victimization uh, by these skeptics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are uh, very active on the internet, uh, Wikipedia in particular. Mm-hmm. They uh, are instrumental. And in, why is it that uh, after nearly 40 years uh, since I got my doctoral uh, diploma in parapsychology, no one else in the world has ever gotten one? Right. These, these skeptics have mm. driven parapsychology out of most universities in the United, out of all of the universities, really, mm. except for one or two in the United States. England now has a strong presence of mm. parapsychology, but uh, they've been very effective in stopping the research and in preventing people from getting research funding. Um, and they use the horse laugh. You know, if you're in a bureaucracy, which universities are and government funding agencies are and foundations are, all bureaucracies, the one thing, if you're a middle-level 
bureaucrat doling out research money. Uh, the one thing that you're, you don't want is have somebody laugh at you. Sure. Because you're doing something that seems obviously on its face foolish, supporting, you know, childish thinking, uh, magical yeah, thinking, yeah. the rising tide of superstition, and, and the like. So they've been very effective yep. in suppressing the field. But I come to think that they're performing a social service, mm -hmm. actually, that... The human race is only capable of absorbing and digesting so much of this at one time. And they they are like uh, the escape valve on the pressure cooker yeah, yeah. Or, or something from keeping things from happening too fast. Uh, in the 1970s, when I first came into the field and Uri Geller was out there bending metal and right. thousands of people around the country are bending metal and the remote viewing research is getting published in Nature and in Science magazine, I thought, we're in the middle of a huge revolution. This right. is going to take It's a long. renaissance. Yeah. yeah. And my friend Jacques Vallée at the time, was one of the pioneers working on the internet, which was then the ARPANET. Okay. And he was also involved in UFO and parapsychology research. And he said, both of these things are revolutionized uh, society. They have revolutionary potential. But now we can look back after 40 years or so, we can say, yes, the internet revolutionized culture. Parapsychology hasn't done that yet. Mm, right. And there's undoubtedly the, the reason is because we're not ready for it mm. as a species. The human species uh, has a lot of maturing to do before we are going to be capable of, uh, as uh, a global culture, of assimilating this data. And so the skeptics, uh, by preventing things from happening too quickly, may be performing a social service. That's an interesting point of view. Yeah, yeah, I I, I appreciate that a lot. You know, um, I'm an acupuncturist, mm -hmm. and as a member of a, you know, I, I guess you could say, at least in the United States, uh, a para medical profession. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, there's no um, there's no deficiency of people making fun of us and giving the horse laugh, and mm -hmm. and and what's interesting about it is, even when you have really good data when there are really good studies done that really do demonstrate that something works and works well and by these parameters and you know and, and you can you can show it sometimes when you're in the field you want to come to the rest of the world and say yeah but if we're all scientists here then you have to bow down to the science then you learn real quickly that that's not always the case right yet i i really appreciate your angle on sharing that because it helps to try to um, get some perspective on, on the frustrations that the people in the field can feel sometimes. Well, yeah. things are changing slowly. For example, about a year ago, the American Psychologist published, which is the flagship publication of the American Psychological Association, and that association has always been uh, hostile to parapsychology. In fact, of all professions, psychologists are the most hostile in general because they're the most threatened, mm. I think, and the most insecure in terms of the pecking order amongst different sciences. <laughs> right, true. You know, where yeah. physicists are sort of at the top and then chemists and biologists and social scientists and yeah. behavioral scientists are at the bottom, so, supposedly. But the American psychologist published a very lengthy article summarizing 
what are known as meta-analyses mm-hmm. of parapsychology research. There have been maybe a dozen or more meta-analyses covering some 1,400 research studies with overwhelming statistical support. And this was all published, you know, quietly by the American Psychological Association. It it didn't make a big splash, but I think people are going to look back and see it as a milestone that Mm -hmm. now, you know, one of the major... Uh, professional associations is in effect giving its blessing to this work. It's a big deal. It, it's that a is. big deal. Yeah. It hasn't yet had a uh, huge uh, impact because it's not as if, you know, all across the United States, colleges are suddenly teaching parapsychology right. it has, or even doing research. But <laughs> I, I think of it as... Um, an important acknowledgement. Maybe 10, 20 years from now, people will look back and say, yeah, we've, we've known about this all along. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, your, your, your buddy, Russell Targ, um, has that quote unquote banned Ted talk, Yeah, you know, and he, he mentions a lot of, um, studies, uh, contradicting the, the retort that most people give, which is, oh, there's, you know, none of this has been scientifically verified and it's absolutely just, you know, none of it's been uh, duplicated outside of those situations and, and he kind of refutes a lot of that stuff. Sure. In that. Yeah, those, those skeptical arguments, uh, <laughs> I guess I keep bringing up Donald Trump again, <laughs> but, but I, I would say the people who, who are trying to uh, claim, for example, that the, the current... Uh, impeachment effort has no constitutional basis uh, that's about as strong as the arguments of skeptics against parapsychology are I don't know how long ago it was, but there was this, um, I guess, a couple, two or three maybe. I don't remember all the details. There, there were mentalists who tricked the system. Mm. Do you know what I'm referring to? There, there was some research, and maybe it was at, at, at SRI, maybe it was somewhere Something else. Something called Project Alpha. That's that, it. That was set up by Randy. He had yes. some young magicians go into a parapsychology, new, brand new parapsychology lab that had been set up at St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. at uh, the American <clears throat> University. Peter Phillips was the f- physicist running the laboratory. And these kids uh, came in and they did fake uh, PK. They, you know, they could bend spoons and, and so on using uh, prestidigitation. Mm. And <clears throat> Randy put them up to it. Uh, and it was embarrassing because the um, researchers, you know, they thought they might have had something exciting. They didn't ever publish any formal papers, but they published or, or they gave a research brief or something mm-hmm. about work in progress. <laughs> and after they presented this research brief, Randy uh, revealed publicly that these people were his protégés uh, sent to, to show everybody how gullible parapsychologists are. Right. But And the irony is they weren't gullible at all. They didn't uh, make any strong claim at mm-hmm. that point in time. They said, you know, we're, we're still looking into this in, in effect. Mm-hmm. They didn't see it as an obvious fraud because the young magicians 
claim that they, that they weren't. You know, they took them at, at their word. And they're good at what they do. But mm-hmm. but Randy, who's a publicity hog, just like Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he spun it. He spun it, ex- exactly. And the laboratory lost all their funding. I'm so glad that mm-hmm. you had all that detail, because uh, I, I didn't know all that detail. Um, and it brings to mind the idea that, well... When you're a magician, you you study how to hack people's perceptions, and it's a very it's a specialization mm-hmm. that maybe a scientist wouldn't have necessarily. Right. Um, their focus is laser focused in a particular way, yep. just like a magician's focus is laser focused mm-hmm. in a particular way, and they're different. It is possible to trick someone if you have enough freedom in in your um, choices about what you can bring in and things like sure. that, but. Russell Targ was a magician. Quite a number of parapsychologists I mean, he, were practicing magic. Russell... And he's a professional back perform- in the day, right? Yeah, as a teenager. As a teenager. He was he giving professional me. performances. Yeah. Uh, Daryl Bem uh, is another parapsychologist mm-hmm. skilled in magic. Lloyd Auerbach was the president of the uh, Mentalist Association who's a parapsychologist. So parapsychologists, uh, many of them study magic and, mm-hmm. uh, and many others consult with magicians when they're setting up their experiments to make sure that uh, they're Deception proof. Yeah. 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 That's great. See, well, a lot of people don't realize this. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are in the magic community who are poo-pooing um, any yeah. kind of uh, curiosity about this stuff will say, oh, you know, yeah. it's easy to trick. Well, scientists study and you need to study the things that um, are pertinent to whatever it is you're trying to understand. Yeah. And um, I mean, just, you know, a, a little personal thing. I, I dabbled in magic for a little bit. And you know why I did? Because I had felt deceived by an Indian guru. Yeah, when you say magic, which... I, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm talking about, yeah, magic tricks. <laughs> oh, not, yeah. not the sacred yeah. magic. Sleight of hand. That's the kind of magic I'm talking about. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm mixing magics here a little bit. Um, I think to, to quote Carlos, a small M versus a big M, Yeah, right? Exactly. Um, small magic. Capital M right? versus <laughs> lowercase M. But okay. why did I do that? Yeah. I did that because I had felt deceived by an Indian guru, mm. and I wanted to understand a little bit of you know, what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason I bring it up is because that kind of magic, Magic, magic tricks was pertinent to what it was I was trying to understand. Sure. And, you know, if these other people are interested in other types of, you know, magical traditions, things like that, well, they are kind of studying that side of the world, that side of, of the human experience. And you would want to be curious about that and see what there is to learn from that. And, yeah. and the world is full of people who uh, make their living by uh, tricking other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there's every reason to be uh, suspicious. Yeah, advertisers. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Big true. corporations, governments. <laughs> a friend of mine uh, who's a fellow hypnotist and a developmental coach and mm-hmm. philosopher and really interesting fellow named James Tripp, um, he made an interesting point um, that you know he he blogged about this like vlogged I guess is the term about um, magic versus science this idea that um, what is science and what is magic doesn't necessarily need to overlap like the two of them can coexist in other words um, there's all this talk about law of attraction and things like that. Mm-hmm. If you follow through with that, those beliefs and you you proceed in a particular way, you're going to get a result. Mm-hmm. When you get that result, do you need a scientist to tell you whether or not that was valid or not? No. On the other hand, um, 
are you going to be able to prove to a scientist that that's in, in fact what actually happened? Probably not, because it's a different protocol, it's a different way of looking at things. But let's just say that if we use the term that, oh, magic is bullshit. Well, what if the, is ma- magic is bullshit, but it's a bullshit that actually works? You're talking about magic with a big M. With now. a capital <laughs> M now, yeah. So, so the yeah. ability to produce, uh, you know, inexplicable or seemingly inexplicable results mm-hmm. with your mind, yeah. um, with your intention, with with something about who you are to attract or create those things. Because if you accept yeah. that you're a creator of your mm-hmm. experience, yeah. then there are a host of things that are very difficult to measure. You know. When I started to study parapsychology, I spent a lot of time in the library at Berkeley. And they had this huge set of like a dozen books called The History of Magic and Experimental Science, written by a fellow named Thorndike. Back, I don't know, it was probably written in the early part of the 20th century. And he points out that all the sciences evolved out of magical thinking. You had alchemy that evolved into chemistry. You had astrology that evolved into astronomy. You had many different mystical disciplines that uh, evolved into scientific disciplines, mathematics, geometry. Sonics. uh, for example, mm-hmm. Pythagoras, the founder of philosophy, was deeply involved in mathematics. Plato, who yeah. was a great yeah. uh, mystic uh, at, at the portals of the academy, Plato's academy, it said, let none enter here who do not understand geometry. Mm. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. and so you, there, there, these disciplines have been intertwined since ancient times. And mm-hmm. I can tell you this... Um, because I created my own unique degree program in parapsychology, I've always defined parapsychology as a discipline that goes back to these ancient times mm. where the earliest magicians were creating science. Mm. I think that there's very important history to be to be looked at there, and if we want to understand what's going on today, it really helps to have that historical perspective, and you'll find it all over the world. Hmm. All that overlap. Yeah. Well, it, it is the study of cause and effect. I mean, if you're science, is you know we want to study cause and effect, and if you go back to other times and other places, that's a type of cause and effect that should be studied. You know, so well, and it's a big yeah. black mark, I think, when you when you create scientism. You know, this belief that science, um, <clears throat> you know, is, is it becomes almost like a religion or a, or a philosophy in and of itself, yeah. where um, you're no longer um, really applying the scientific method all the way through because it becomes a belief and as opposed to a a way mm-hmm. of going about something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the tricky thing about the, your metaphor of cause and effect mm-hmm. is, is it makes it sound mechanistic. It does, and yes. It does. <clears throat> actually, it does. The, the thing is, there's always a human being in, involved. And, you know, we like and a scientist or, or a scientistic person, a person who subscribes to scientism, as you pointed out, might like to think that we are mechanisms, that we are uh, biological machines of, of some sort. But 
I think probably human beings are not quite mechanistic, and I think the universe itself is not quite mechanistic. And one of the problems of applying the scientific method to these delicate, subtle areas of consciousness is, is there are always the, the subtleties that uh, cannot be accounted for in um, the scientific method. The scientific method is very good as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. it, it's you know, accomplished yeah. incredible wonders, and there are many wonders yet, yet to come. And and it's certainly a very important tool uh, that parapsychologists use. And I subscribe to the scientific method uh, completely, but I don't think it's the only method of inquiry. Right. Yeah, that's the, well said. It is a method of inquiry, mm -hmm. and. Um, um, it's sort of like, you know, you need the right tool for the job. You know, you, if I'm going to measure somebody's temperature, I need a thermometer. That's the right tool for the job, right. right? That's a reliable, valid instrument for that specific task. But there are other things that we want to inquire about that need very different tools. And, you know, maybe we can't even use the word tools <laughs> sometimes. Well, especially when the tool yeah. is you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> right, right. My mind is the instrument. Or, yeah, you know, that's, that's what yeah. it boils down to. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, it, it gets, um, you know, th this brings up or brings to mind uh, behaviorism mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, applied behavioral science as it, you know, there are dystopian directions that that has gone yeah. uh, from the 60s all the way to the present time mm -hmm. um, between um, electrodes being implanted in the brain to create uh, responses in primates and possibly humans to, you know, government run programs, things like that to now very, very subtle things that they've created. Um, I'm not just talking about Elon Musk's Neuralink, but frequencies and all the mm. experimentation with influencing through, um, you know, sound waves and, and so forth and electromagnetics. I wonder how all of that's going to come to a head when the two paths of, you know, finding ways to control what is scary to people, the unconscious mm -hmm. urges and so forth that, that, that um, Freud spoke about mm -hmm. and the um, science of electrochemistry in mm -hmm. the brain comes together. It seems like we're right at that pivotal moment where over this next couple of years or few years even, there's gonna be such quantum leaps in that. Does that make sense? Like it seems like like they're we're at a point where things could change drastically in the next. Well, you know, going few years. back to the 1950s, um, government agencies were exploring the use of psychedelic drugs for sure. military purposes, mm -hmm. for mind control, or what if you sprayed LSD over an enemy population? Can you then move in and take over right. th things yeah. of that sort? Uh, and. and it can lead to all sorts of abuses, and, and, which is one reason why maybe it's a good thing to go slowly. Mm -hmm. um, I remember back in the 1970s, there was a French psychic, Jean-Paul Girard, who was metal bending, doing things just like Uri Geller, right. and attracting the attention of researchers at the Henri Poincaré Institute in Paris, big research center. And... They had uh, Girard doing experiments with fruit flies. Like, can you use your psychokinesis to modify the genetic expression of fruit flies, which is very well understood. Any undergraduate biology student will learn about that. And he found quickly that they could. 
You can use psychokinesis to modify genetic patterns. Interesting. Hmm. And at that point, Walkowski shut down the research. Wow. And I commend him. Wow. I think he did the right thing because, you know, do we really think the human race is ready for that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have nuclear weapons, and it's very questionable uh, that we're handling nuclear energy wisely. Right. At this point, mm -hmm. we have a huge global problem about what are we going to do with all the nuclear waste we've created, yeah. for mm -hmm. example. Uh, we're, we're not very good at running our own government right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems to me that to... to you know, add these enhanced capacities to the human population at our present stage of development uh, and maturity is is a very risky thing to do. I agree. Um, what you're saying, though, reminds me of things like homunculi, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the creation of composite beasts that you read about in these alchemical texts and uh -huh. mythology and so forth. Um, but here we are making chimeras right now. You know, in China, they're uh, making human chimpanzee um, genetic blends now. That that that's what it was, MIT published an article on that. How they're yeah. they're starting to do these things. It gets gets pretty scary. They're doing this even without us being involved. You know, it's just at a governmental level. Sure, because they have you know different uh, ethos. Yeah, in, for sure. In China than than we have in the West, and they're going to push yeah. on, on that. I understand they have plans to use genetic engineering on a wide scale to in increase the uh, intelligence and other capacities of their population, mm. and it may well be that uh, they will become you know major superpower in the future. If if all of a sudden you know after mm. two or three generations. Chinese people who are already very smart become super smart. <laughs> I mean, it could happen, and there could be a global uh, gene race, just as mm -hmm. we had an arms race and a race to go to the moon and the like. Um, these things can happen, and, and they usually have unpredictable consequences and sometimes very scary consequences. Uh, you know, it's hard to predict with all these new technologies coming online uh, how the human race is going to navigate through them. But it seems to me that um, wisdom is is ultimately required, and and wisdom is is very lacking. So yes, <laughs> I think. Uh, as much as I want to encourage people, and I've devoted my life to encouraging people to understand the data of parapsychology and all the interwoven related fields of mm -hmm. consciousness studies and mysticism and, and so on, I, I'm in no rush to see humanity as a whole move forward if, if we can't exhibit uh, more wisdom. If, you know, if it's not done in the context of uh, a... Um, an approach towards spiritual enlightenment of some sort? Right. Otherwise, it's bu hao, meaning not good in Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> not good. That's Mandarin Chinese right there. Well uh, done, Carlos. Han hao. Han hao. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Tone is everything. <laughs> wow. For the listener who hasn't had a chance yet or hasn't, you know, 
looked into it. A lot of your your shows are available um, right on YouTube, um, and you've they've been posted, right? That's that's www.newthinkingaloud.com. That's a l l o w e d. That's really great. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that that I can see just through seeing you through the years is that you've always maintained um, what I would call um, kind of like a joyful curiosity that you show when you ask questions. Um, it's It comes out in your, like, like you're really truly enjoying yourself in the process. So I admire that. I admire that you've kept that and it's well, still here you. today. I see it in I'm, you right now. <laughs> you know, there I'm it is. glad it shows. Yeah, there <laughs> it, does. it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a boyish um, uh, innocence to your curiosity, which I, I really admire that. Well, I'll yeah. share with you one nugget then. Ooh. The, the, the secret to being happy. All right. Ah, listen in, folks. <laughs> Lower your expectations. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. In a way, yes, but the, yeah. the, the secret to happiness to me is very simple. You commit to being happy. You tell yourself, I'm going to be happy no matter what. Like mm. a relationship. Beautiful. That's awesome. It, 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 happiness is a commitment that you make to yourself. Ah, beautiful. Thank you for that. It's like an arranged marriage. We'll just get married to happiness. <laughs> Not a bad way to think of it, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I like that. I'm ready for the honeymoon. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right. Well, thanks. You're Thank very you so welcome. much. Yeah, you, you uh, made a dream come true today. Good. Thank you for that. Yes. Yes, likewise. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. If you'd like to check out Dr. Mishlove's show, you can go to www.newthinkingaloud.com. My name is Oliver Altine. I produce this show. I also wrote the theme music, which you're listening to right now. And the interstitial music this time was an old song of mine called The Abbot's Dream. You can find that on my album, Obsidian Kite. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. We would love to connect with you there. And you can find our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.